What is going on, everyone? This is Rich Killen, and you are listening to the Welcome to Hope podcast. Uh, today, we have a very special guest, and I, from the moment we booked him, I was actually really looking forward to today's conversation. Uh, but today, we have a friend of mine, uh, Johnny Fernandez, is here. Uh, Johnny, how are you doing? Doing well. Thank you, Rich. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. Thank you for asking. Uh, so part of the reason we have Johnny on is uh, I want to get into, well, a, a conversation about, uh, you know, uh, suicide, self-harm, things of that nature. And Johnny's been doing a lot of, uh, I guess, research and studying and, and just has, um, I think a lot to share with us in that regard. Um, and so right now, Johnny, you are a part of, uh, what, what, what's the name of the coalition that you're a part of? I'm a part of the Idaho, uh, suicide prevention coalition through the Southwest district organization. Perfect. And, and so what, what exactly is that? <laughs> yeah. So it's it's pretty new. Um, it, it's a, a group of professionals in different fields who are working together to find ways to prevent suicide and whatever whatever that looks like. Um, I, I got involved after speaking at a local high school. Um, hmm. Someone from the the Southwest District was there and uh, asked me to join this coalition, which is still kind of being developed. And so there's people cool. who work for counseling services, and that's that's kind of the majority of it. Um, but they also want kind of a religious or um, spiritual say in there as well, because that does play a huge part for a lot of people is their religion. Right. Um, and you haven't brought it up yet, but I'm a youth and associate pastor at a Nazarene church in Idaho. Um, but I have a background in mental health with my master's in addiction counseling. So I use that to kind of merge worlds together. Um, and so yeah. the Suicide Prevention Coalition is kind of the perfect doorway for me to be able to do that, um, to have yeah. that um, identification as, hey, I'm a pastor, but I'm here to speak on suicide prevention from the aspect that I deal with kids multiple times constantly a week. Yeah, that that's awesome. And, and we're not necessarily going to get into this on, on this podcast, I don't think, but I there is a, we, we just got done with a series on like stigma and mental health. And I think uh, there's a little bit of stigma when it comes to religion and mental, mental health. And so I love that you are combining those two things. Yeah, for sure. There, there yeah. definitely is. And sometimes we see them <laughs> going, they, they're, they're opposite ends when they can be working together. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So what, what made you want to kind of get involved in this coalition and um, just kind of like suicide prevention and things like that? Sure. If you don't mind me asking. Yeah, no, I don't mind. I'm, I'm pretty open and transparent with things because um, I think that that's the best way we can prevent other people from making the same mistakes. Mm -hmm. uh, so like I said, I work with teenagers a lot. I see many teenagers struggling with uh, mental health and um, suicidal thoughts and self-harm and things like that. Uh, and part of what I do in the ministry that I've been assigned um, is to share my own testimony and my own story and my battle with it. So I battled a lot with self-harm and depression um, for as long as I can remember, actually. Mm. Um, 
I don't know how much detail you want me to go into the history, um, but I, like I said, I can't remember a time period when when I didn't struggle with depression. I didn't know what it was because um, right. it wasn't it wasn't talked about. No one educated me on that kind of thing. No no school teacher talked about it. Nothing, right? And so I just remember always feeling like I wasn't enough. Um, mm. I always felt tired. I always felt really hard on myself and. I didn't like myself too much. Um, and then I, I took it out in different means, and self-harm was one of them. I remember yeah. starting in sixth grade in different ways, smaller, and then progressively over time, it, it grew more severe and it grew more um, consistently um, how, sure. how I would self-harm. Yeah. And so it, there were time periods where it, it, it was almost non-existent. And then other times when it was like full force, so kind of like uh, addictive behavior. Um, okay. But with with that, it was a symptom of that depression. Um, and so I'm open with my students about how yes, it is. It's it's a real thing. It's a it's a battle. Um, I'm not perfect, and I've dealt with it. And hey, look, now I'm a pastor ministering to you guys. Yeah. Um. And it, and it's out of true care and compassion for your guys' well-being. And I know in this area um, that I'm in, it's, it's very taboo still. Um, mm -hmm. I've even had some people come up to me and ask me to stop talking about it. More adults, not kids ever, um, but to not, to not talk about it. And I, I answered with a, a, a no, <laughs> because it's, it's part of that healing that we, we as Christians believe in. We, we say that there is healing out there, but how can we heal from something that we can't even acknowledge the pain of? Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So how, how prevalent are things like self-harm, suicide? I mean, I'm sure it's something, well, I know it's something that isn't always talked about, uh, which is why I love what you're, you're doing and you're, you're talking about it. Um, but like how, how prevalent is this kind of a thing, especially cause I guess your, your focus is more on, teenagers and adolescents and things like that. Um, so how, how prevalent is it? In, in teenagers and adolescents, it's, it's more common than we were, we would think. And statistically there, there's always skews in statistics, as you know, based off of how people, um, report with they're comfortable enough to report something to a stranger or mm -hmm. someone they know, but it's all, there's always some kind of bias or skew in statistics. Um, and to me, that's scary because the statistics are pretty high. And I'm sure if it was skewed, it's skewed to be lower than it actually is. Um, so suicide amongst all of America is one of the leading causes of death. Um, though women are more likely to attempt, men are more likely to use lethal means. Mm. About, I think it was 20, either 2019 or 2020, 57.9% of men use firearms as a way to take their lives. So they, they go straight to what they know they, it's pretty irreversible. Right. Versus yeah. women are more likely to try to overdose, which is a higher chance of um, getting there in time and helping uh, the person with a solution or uh, pumping their stomach or whatever they need to do. So between the ages of 10 to 14 in this study in 2020, um, suicide was actually the second leading cause of death. Wow. I know. I was even shocked. Yeah, because like I said, it's probably skewed to even worse rates. Um, to be, it, it would be even worse rates. 
Um, and it's also the second leading cause of death around 25 to 30 um, for. Mm. So there's that gap then we notice of 15 to 24, right? Yeah. Not in that time period, it's about the third leading cause of death for that age group, so young adults. So we see it very prevalent in 10 all the way up to emerging adulthood, which is about 25, 26. Um, and it's, it's kind of scary. And it's, it's something yeah. that I think we, we underestimate or we don't take serious. Um, because there, there's nearly two times as many suicides in the U.S. than there were homicides in 2020. Wow. Wow. Like, it's crazy. We're, we're killing, but we're not, but, but we're killing ourselves a lot because there's a lot of maladaptive behaviors and thought processes and lack of coping skills. Wow. Yeah, and that, that's a big range. Like, what would you say, 10 to? 10 to 14. It's the second leading cause. Yeah. 15 to 24, it's the third leading cause. Um, and this is all in the CDC's information and studies abated, so the Center for Disease Control. Um, and then 25 to 34, it's the second leading cause. Wow. Yeah, that's, I mean, to think that there's 10-year-olds, mm -hmm. uh, first of all, um, which blows my mind. Yeah. Um, and the numbers have been gradually increasing right. over time. Every time they do the study, the numbers go up. It, it's not going down. So I, I know I've heard this this question before from, from some people, but um, I feel like I usually hear this from, I, I guess, older people uh, who may talk about, you know, their how their generation um, was, was different. But what do you think has sort of caused this this increase? Obviously, it wasn't talked about as much you know, I don't know what, 20, 30 years ago. Sure. Um, and, and now it's talked about a lot more, but I guess my question is, do you, is the increase in those rates, is it because we're talking about it more or is there something else there? Sure. Um, I, I do not believe it's because we talk about it more. Um, I don't believe that's the, the, the cause of the increase. And there's, there's a lot of different variables. And I think that age group, is susceptible to 24-7 bullying. Mm. And that is a developmental, a, a vital developmental period of our time when we're trying to discover identity. And so when you're trying to discover who you are, but then you have the bullies at school, some people have their parents, right, even as bullies, and then they go home and have social media right. that they're being bullied on, text messages, Instagram, Facebook, la-di-da-di-da-di-da. Um, it's, it's constant bullying and telling them that, you're not good enough, you're, you're this, you're that, you're trash, or like my students like to say, you're dog water. Which, that's an interesting one. <laughs> you're dog water, okay. Um, I, don't think it, I don't think it's at all caused um, by talking about it more. In fact, when you, you take a suicide prevention class, they tell you you're not putting thoughts into their heads, thoughts you already had. I think right. now it's just um, more people are feeling comfortable enough to report these numbers, uh, that they have experienced suicidal thoughts. Um, I've even talked with pastors that are much older than I am who have said, yeah, but I, I mean, you're the first person I've actually told this to or admitted out loud that I've had suicidal thoughts in the past. Yeah. Because because it was taboo, it wasn't talked about, so people wouldn't report it, and it, it was just bottled up or pushed under the rug, versus now people are comfortable, more comfortable um, saying it in order to get the help they need, because there is a, 
help available. Right. Right. So, so we, we have this, this big range, uh, because of, it sounds like a big part of it has to do with bullying, um, and, and things like that. So I would imagine like social media probably plays, plays a big role in this, right? I would say so. And I know for me, when I was in high school, it, it definitely was. And that's when social media was emerging. We saw yeah. MySpace, but everyone was on <laughs> MySpace. Um, I know personally, I got bullied all the time. Um, and for some reason, I just couldn't step away from it. I think part of me started to accept and believe what they were saying until it became what that was my identity is exactly what they were saying. And who yeah. I was. Um, so it's, yeah, I would say a large, large part is social media use. And there's there's different things um, that we can do to monitor and protect teenagers from that. And I know you've done um, a course on it. Um, right. On social media usage. I'm sure you've probably done several of them. Uh, we have our juvenile probation office here um, in the city do one as well. And so one of my youth helpers is actually a probation officer, and he does it. And he's going to do one here at the church soon. That's and awesome. Because it's a great tool, but it can also be very dangerous. Yeah. I, I was talking to a, uh, a school psychologist, um, several, several years ago, and I'm sure this has probably gotten even worse since then. Um, but he was talking about how, you know, pre-social media, if somebody was getting bullied, you know, it would kind of stay at school or maybe mm -hmm. if it was somebody in the neighborhood, like it would just, it would be outside. Mm -hmm. uh, but then you come home and like home was the safe space and you could sort of escape it at that point in time. Um, but now with social media, that's there, there is no safe space because there's always social media there. Yeah. Um, and like you, like you were talking about, like it's hard to put that down. Um, you know, cause I don't know, maybe somebody's listening and be like, well, if it's an issue, then just don't get on social media, but it's, I wish it was that easy. <laughs> right. It's, it's not like, like I said, it's a great tool as well. So a lot of schools utilize it to pass on information. A lot of organizations use it to pass on information. I, as a youth pastor, use it to pass on information, but I try to have multiple mediums. So like email, um, take homes, but a lot of people don't do that because it's quick, effective, and most of the time cheap. Right. Yeah. Yeah. If not free. It, yeah. So what do you think? I, I know solution probably isn't the right word, um, but what, what do you think the, like, what do you think either people need to know or we as a, a society should be doing to try and, uh, I don't know, prevent or, um, you know, keep these things from happening so often? Sure. So let me let me ask you this because I feel like we touched on several things. So mm -hmm. let's let's I say we talk about them individually. Um, okay. Yeah. So I, I know we talked about self harm, which even in in that there's two categories. There's non suicidal self harm and uh, self harm with suicidal intent, um, and then suicide itself or suicidal thoughts. So para suicides as well, um, and social media and the dangers of it. Um, what part, what route do you want to go down first? Yeah. We could touch on all of them. <laughs> this could end up being a 10 part uh, episode here at that rate. Um, I'm glad, I'm glad you um, identified, identified those differences also, because uh, that 
if we can take another step back, um, what what is the difference between self harm and and suicide, and and then even the what did you call it non non suicidal self harm non suicidal self harm? Um, can, can you share a little bit about that difference, and then then we can sure talk about where to go from there. Sure, and I think it's important too to define terms so we're all on the same page. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, so suicide is the act of anyone's life, right? Uh, parasuicide is an attempt. So when we attempt, but thank goodness fail at per, at ending uh, one's own life, it's it's a parasuicide. Um, and there's different ways to do it. And with with a parasuicide and with a suicide, you're doing a suicidal self harm. So you're you're doing something with the intent of ending your life. Versus an SSI, non-suicidal self-injury um, or self-harm, they're used um, synonymously. It's it's a behavior that's um, there not to end your life, but there's many different um, potential possibilities of why someone does an SSI. Um, and we can really focus on, on that um, or the, the suicide part, but... Um, no matter what it is, it's it's an opportunity for growth, and it's an opportunity mm. for um, healing uh, through through counseling, through medication, through whatever um, whatever means. Which you, as a counselor, know all of that. Yeah. And pairing them together is great, but it it gets it gets worse before it gets better. Speaking from experience. Sure. Sure. So what are, what do you think are the, the factors or the reasons that people engage in the non-suicidal self-harm? Sure. So uh, I'm going to, I am getting um, an article published soon with uh, my friend who is a doctor in, in Tucson, Arizona. Uh, we, we talked about the non-suicidal self-harm and how it becomes an addiction and really focus on that. Mm. So, Speaking a lot of this came from research mixed with my experience with non-suicidal self-harm. Um, so for I'm going to speak from my experience here. So for me, um, starting it was I, I had a lot of depression and anxiety, and it, it built up this, like, tension in my head, and it, it, it felt overwhelming, and I didn't know um, what to do in those situations. And I actually um, grabbed a protractor. <laughs> Because I was a math mm. nerd in sixth grade, <laughs> and I started using a, a protractor to self harm, um, and then it, it it did offer a relief, right? And so when we we self harm, it triggers um, a reward system in our head, um, much like our reward system goes off if we were to take opiates. Like, mm. That's crazy. I never yeah. <laughs> like you're you're kind of. Doing drugs by self—it's <laughs> harming your body in so many different ways. It's crazy, um, but there's also other reasons why people self-harm. Like I also did it at times for punishment. If I messed up or I felt I wasn't good enough, this was—I don't know—my my way to reconcile or um, to to make amends, I guess, to myself. It, of course, this is all cognitive distortions. This is not healthy thinking, right? Yeah, um, but it, it is what the reality was. Um, if I didn't do well at sports or a test or I lost in a school election or things that I thought were my identifying and defining moments and titles and 
accolades and blah, 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 blah. I had to punish myself. Mm. If I did something wrong, I needed to punish myself because it needed to happen. Right. Um, so it would be when I was depressed, it would be um, as punishment. And sometimes, this is how distorted my thinking was, it would be because I got something that I didn't deserve or mm. I thought I didn't deserve. Um, yeah. And so I, it was that, it was that guilt. Like I, I shouldn't be doing this. Um, but it was, it, it's, it's crazy because, um, like I said, a lot of it was in times of like anxiety, um, yeah. a lot of depression. And so going back and looking at the research that we've done, the fact that it releases like, uh, or activates a reward center that opiates does makes a lot of sense. Why that was my go-to. Yeah. Even before drugs and alcohol, that was my first my first go to, and it continued even to after getting sober. Um, yeah. It, it there's so much like we talked about taboo around mental health. That's one of the things that isn't talked about is the fact that it it can become addicting. Yeah. And that's because it does something. If it wasn't, if it didn't do something. It wouldn't be addicting. It's hard to think from the outside. Oh, you're gonna hurt your body. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You want to yeah. feel better? Go hurt yourself. Uh, what? Yeah, but there, there's that that like this like adrenaline rush that kind of comes with it sure as is. well. Um, which I don't. I'm, maybe that's that's a another factor in it. But for sure, you know, for some people, they they really. Uh, I know I've heard of people who feel maybe numb inside. Yes, and it's um, and that's another reason that I, I failed to bring up. They they feel numb, so it gets. Or for me, I felt numb at moments, and sometimes disassociated from reality. And mm -hmm. so that would be, for lack of better terms, my grounding technique. Yeah, even though it wasn't a healthy one. Yeah. Um, and you say a lot in in counseling. You did the best with the knowledge and the resources you had at the time. Um, and so yeah, for for numbing, it's to feel something. Yeah. Right. And again, it doesn't have to be with the intent of ending your life. It's a non-suicidal self-injury. Um, or if you're disassociated, when when I would do that because anxiety would get so bad, it would be a way to bring me back. Gotcha. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. So I, I love that we kind of differentiated between the non-suicidal self-harm and the, the suicidal attempts or the mm -hmm. self-harm um, with the intent of uh, suicide, or I can't remember exactly how you phrased that. You probably said it much more eloquently than I did just then. Oh, I doubt it. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I think that's important to distinguish because I, I think like th those are two very different ways to kind of treat or, or go about, um, um, I don't know, rectifying those, those things. Mm -hmm. Would would you agree with that? I would. So with, with the non-suicidal self-harm, do you approach that as if you would any sort of addiction? So that that is a great question. Just like with any kind of substance use or um, substance use disorder, it for for many cases doesn't start as an addiction, right? You start with mm -hmm. curiosity, um, and mm -hmm. there's different reasons it could lead to an addiction. So so the shame cycle would be one of them, right? Mm -hmm. We have that event, you that kind of triggers everything. Um, you self-harm, you have that shame, you feel bad about it, you try to turn away from it, but then something drags you down or you feel shame for that event and then you 
self harm again. So very similar to the addiction exchange cycle as well, or just exchange cycles in general. Yeah. Then that could be one reason that you have an addiction. So um, just like any other addiction, others can be that it, you can actually get that chemical addiction too, just like with substances because of that reward center being activated. Um, yeah. But I, the, the purpose of my article was to say that, yes, you, you can treat it like an addiction when it identifies itself as an addiction. So an addiction would be something that's persistently done despite negative consequences, right? And then you grow a tolerance and you get a withdrawal. Mm. Um, the same thing can be said about self-harm, right? Consistent, yeah. even though you know there's negative consequences, you gain tolerance, unfortunately, to self-harm where you have to do it deeper and more times and blah, 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 hotter, whatever the case is, whatever the means is. Um, and when you don't do it, you get anxiety. I remember when I tried to stop, even after I was already sober from substances, that was like the hardest thing to kick, but not only because I did it for, at that point, around 75% of my life, but it, it, it felt unnormal and unnatural uh. and it, it made that anxiety like 20 times worse because I was going through that withdrawal. <laughs> like I need to do it. And I would even, I was even working with my sponsor at the time. I'm like, Hey, <laughs> um, I'm currently walking for my sober living to Walmart to buy a knife. I need a knife. <laughs> like it wasn't good. And it became, and it was yeah. its, its own addiction. Um, yeah. So it needed to be treated like that. So we, my sponsor yeah. and I, we, we worked through the steps that I did for, for alcohol and substances um, with self-harm. Um, hmm. With my counselor, we, we did CBT, just like with you would use in substance uh, therapy. And I don't even think the, the counselor at the time knew that he was really connecting the two as like a substance. Um, yeah. Substance therapy or an addiction therapy. Right. Um, but <laughs> so, so yeah, I would treat it when it's identified as an addiction, just like a process addiction, right? Gambling, yeah. pornography, it's a process addiction. Yeah. Um, and you treat them very similar to substance use disorders. Wow. Yeah. That, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and we could probably talk about that for another, another hour, but, but I want to make sure we move on to the, the, the suicidal attempts, mm -hmm. um, what, what, what do we do about that? Oh, goodness. <laughs> I wish there was a one size fit all answer, but again, it goes back to how we're all different. Um, yeah. So I'm going to preface with this. Um, I lost my best friend to um, suicide about like a week over a year ago. Mm. 28th. Wow. Um, she she was suicidal. She was just got two years in sober uh, in sobriety, and intentionally relapsed with the intent to to end her life. Um, no one saw it coming, and it, that that's what it's it's crazy because m me and my other closest friend who was still in Arizona, were mm -hmm. case, we were case managers, and we were trained on to see the signs of. Um, suicide and the warning, the red flags, everything. Yeah. And so was my best friend who committed it. She was also <laughs> on it and it didn't help in that situation because she knew exactly yeah. when, she, when she had her mindset, she hid everything because she knew what she could hide. Right. Um, 
Now, I don't want to. I don't want you to hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying education on this stuff is a bad thing at all, at all. But she also should have known better that she had resources available to her. Mm-hmm. I think uh, that is one thing major that we can do is have a variety of resources that are available. Cool. It's 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 cool to have like a counselor, right? But they're not. They're not there 24-7. not going to call them at 3 in the morning when depression hits as much as you want to. Boundaries and you know respect. (laughs) Um, But having other resources, peer support specialists, a case manager, um, coping skills, developing coping skills that work for you. Because, again, that varies on the person. What works for me doesn't work for someone else. I like hiking. I like playing guitar. I only like playing guitar for like 30 minutes and realize how limited my skills are. And then I get frustrated. So I have to stop. (laughs) (laughs) So it's, it's different from people where someone might be able to just do the same thing for like an hour. My ADHD is like, okay, 10 minutes, either you hyper focus or you don't focus at all. Um, and, and, And so it's having different resources available for people to, to use or to try or see what works for them. But, um, you probably know the answer to this question, but what is the the one thing that never works in suicide prevention? Not talking about it? Basically, doing nothing. Yeah. Doing nothing, right? Acting like it doesn't exist. Acting like it's not there. Acting like you, you aren't uh, depressed or struggling with suicidal thoughts. Mm-hmm. You know what does work? Doing something. Trying other things to see what works. Like, I... I went on years trying different medications paired with counseling. And sometimes it did get worse. And so I had to be monitored. Um, yeah. And there was, there's a lot of variables in people's lives. Um, and I'm sure as a counselor, you've seen how complex each person is from person to person. Right. Um, yeah. I was trying to balance medication while getting counseling and then trying to get off substances and trying to deal uh, with trauma from a sexual assault and like, and then it ended up with yeah. me trying to take my life. And what yeah. could have prevented that? I don't, I don't know. It was a hot mess that night. I was arguing with the one male figure in my life who I completely trusted that I was living with. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it was trying to get sober, so my, my emotions were all over the place. My balance was just all messed up. Um, there was that, that depression that was already there. There was the, the chemical balance trying to you know, do its thing while getting off of substances. So there's two things fighting each other of trying to make me feel okay. Um, So it's, it's a tough subject that there's not, I wish there was an easy solution for. Um, But what I, what I do as, as a youth pastor for people is try to let them know I might not be your answer, but I'm there to help you find it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like I I'm there to give you resources or, do coping skills with you, having account. That was something I needed was accountability. Um, I had that because there was no one that, that I felt in my life cared about me. So I didn't feel safe talking to anyone to open up at that time. Mm. And it's not like cared about like, oh, parents love you. Like, yes, my parents right. loved me. But it was I didn't feel safe because I didn't feel like I was cared about. And that was my perspective at the time, which was valid for me at the time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so... The solution, I guess, is to be the person that you need for someone else and keep moving forward because we can't go back. I can't go back and take back what I've done or what happened to me, but what I can do is be a safe person, 
learning from those experiences to provide opportunities and coping skills, accountability, and just love. Um, the statistics show that it takes just um, consistent love from one person mm. to change everything. Um, and, and that's why at, when I came in in my position here in October of 2020, my big thing um, for my youth leaders that wanted to join or that were there um, in order to stay is I need you committed and consistent in these students' lives. I don't need someone that just shows up the one night a week, or even if you show up that one night a week, and yeah. you're inconsistent. I don't, I, I can't use that, unfortunately. Yeah. These students have enough, especially the students in my demographic, they have enough adults that should, society tells them they should be trusting, right? Um, that aren't a part of their lives. Right, it yeah. questioning, like, why, why am I not worth it? Um, and it causes those identity issues again, which causes a lot of depression or can yeah. lead to a lot of depression. It's that identity from people that are important to them. So for me, what I try to do for my solution is be involved any way I can by sharing my story, by pointing to resources, by um, being a place sharer. Have you ever heard that term? I I'm not very familiar with that, no. So it's... It's a theological term that I feel like counselors use without knowing it. Um, it's just sharing the space with someone and holding space for okay. emotions. So it's not yeah. trying to fix them, um, not trying to make them feel better. It's allowing them to process through their emotions um, and sitting there with them. So in the darkness, it's holding that light just enough so they can see until their arm is strong enough to hold that light. It's holding that umbrella uh. in the rain until their arm is strong enough to hold that umbrella and start doing their stuff yeah. by themselves. It's and it's in the celebrations too. Like as a counselor, I'm sure you're, you're excited when someone comes and shares uh, a victory yeah. they have. Hey, I tried absolutely. this skill. I was consistent with it. It worked. You're yeah. probably ecstatic. And that's yeah, absolutely. in the field for, uh, for actually caring and empathy. It's <laughs> like someone in ministry. I feel like counselors and ministry, like I said, they're not, yeah. not against each other. They should be supporting each other. Um, so the, the tools needed are, one of them is being a place sharer. They're like, oh, yeah. okay, I'm gonna sit with you in this disgusting, nasty darkness because you shouldn't be doing it alone. Right, right, and oh, I love I'm that. And I'm gonna celebrate even the little victories with you. I'm gonna even blow them up because what may seem like a little victory to society, it's actually a huge victory for you. For someone with yeah. social anxiety, you went to the store by yourself? Dude, that's <laughs> awesome, that's epic. Right. Because yeah. they're, they're probably downplaying it because of their yeah. anxiety and their depression. Oh, I, I went to the store. No, that's huge. That's right. awesome. Let's take a second to hold that space and really acknowledge the work. And then that's where motivational interviewing comes in. And um, you you give them affirmations without making it like a codependent affirmation. And you, it's, it's, you worked hard for this. You did this. Yeah. You walked into that store by yourself. I wasn't there. I had no yeah. part in this. But I want to celebrate right. with you anyway because that is awesome. Yeah, meeting them where they're at. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly, and it's tough, and there's different situations. Uh, but it's not just meeting them where they're at, but it's taking a step further and mm -hmm. not letting them stay there. Yeah, yeah. So I love you too much to stay there. I care for right. you too much for to leave you there. But I'm going to be with you and walk with you. But we're going to keep walking forward. Yeah, yeah. So it, it sounds like what you're saying the 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 again i don't want to use the word solution but the the direction maybe that we need to be heading in is on a on a bigger scale 
right? We need to have these, these kinds of resources in the community and things like that. People that can help direct people that are struggling with suicidal ideation or anything like that. And, and, uh, yes. kind of fill in those gaps. But notice um, how there's like a, there's an under, a, a theme that undergirds all of it. Right. Did you pick up on that relationship. Yes. Yes. It, every one of those included some kind of relationship. Oh, you need resources. We need to talk to someone that you trust. Mm. Otherwise, are you really going to go see a counselor or believe right. that you should get on medication or that this coping skill is useful unless you trust someone. So there's a relationship. Please sharing relationship, listening to someone relationship. Right. Right. Cause yeah. we're, we're relational beings. Right. Right. Oh, that's great. Um, yeah, I, I love that. Um, especially the, what you just said there. And, and I appreciate you being able to refocus me on that because I think relationships are key. Um, like you said, we are relational beings. Um, and so being able to find people that if there's not those people in the community, finding people that, that you can trust. And mm -hmm. I think there, there still needs to be an openness about these kinds of conversations. Uh, I think, you know, kind of normalizing some mm -hmm. of it. Um, and I, I think that kind of leads to a little bit more trust with, um, with being vulnerable. Yeah. Um, I would agree. But then on an individual basis, you know, we all need to be those place sharers for people when, when they need it. Um, so yeah, I, I love that. Um, do you, do you have any resources or, you know, for people that may be struggling or with, with any of this kind of stuff, um, places that they can go, uh, if, they're, if they're having a hard time finding those resources. Yeah. Um, I hate to say this, but Google is actually a really good tool for trying to find coping skills. Um, you can find people who are LPCs, um, their blo personal blogs that they write about different coping skills. That's what I did a lot. Um, okay. But also make sure you know who the author is. Um, you mm -hmm. research their credentials and trust their credentials. Um other tools would be, it, it, gosh, it depends on, again, the situation. Um, but I think what we'll, we'll, is helpful is finding some kind of um, case manager or advocate that has connections to resources in your area. Um, so it changes, too, based on your area. So what if you right. want therapy um, that is, gosh, what it what if you don't want to go in person? Nowadays, we have online therapy. We have virtual right. therapy. Or right. what if it doesn't fit into your schedule, right? Right. People who do, like, what is it, BetterHelp? BetterHelp is that, one of them, yeah. Mm -hmm. and, um, I, don't, I, tr I think I tried it when I moved to Idaho, but it wasn't for me. But my wife enjoyed it. Um, mm -hmm. and it was quick sessions. I, she had, like, 20-minute sessions on, like, weekends. So huh. it was, like, it fit into both people's schedule. Um, yeah. So there's tools like that where you don't even have to leave the house. Yeah. Um, oh gosh, yeah. It all depends on what what the underlying like reason you have depression. If it's a chemical imbalance, you see a doctor, right? If it's yeah. fully a chemical imbalance, 
you you want to make sure you get on medication and a counselor, right? Is you want to hit it from all all sides because it's not a simple disorder, right? Yeah. And even in the DSM, there's different depressive disorders. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's better to me. It's better to have more information than not enough. So it's seeing specialists, seeing people who take the time to study this, and seeing people and uh, meeting with people who invest into right. Yeah. Right? Um, and I, I like that word invest because when you invest something, you're hoping it gets better or you're hoping it's, you know what I mean? Like when you invest yeah. in stock, you're hoping it's worth more. Right. You invest in a person, you're investing your time, your resources because you believe and you trust that they're going to get better and they're going to then go out and do that for someone else. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and and just since we're, we're we're talking about this, I'm I'm going to go ahead and throw this out there. Um, the the phone number, if anybody needs it for the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, it's eight hundred two seven three eight two five five. All states pretty much have their own uh, hotline number as well, uh, but that's just a good uh, national one that that people can always contact if they are um, if they are needing it. And I know there's also other programs out there where you can kind of, they have like a, a, a almost like a text chat kind of a thing. They have the um, National Suicide Text yes. line. Yeah. Uh, so that that can also be an option for some people that are, are seeking that kind of help. Um, but I, I think the number changed. Um, did it change? The suicide hotline number to be even easier. I'm pretty oh, okay. sure it's like, I'm trying to look it up, but it, it changed in July to be just be like eight one one for like a mental health line or something. Oh, nine eight 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 one one. I can't remember which one. So maybe after this, you add like an addendum yeah. to the podcast with the, the number. Yes, yes, we'll we'll have to do that. Yes. Um, but I, I just want to thank you, Johnny, for for being on here with us. Um, and I appreciate not only the the information and the, the knowledge that you provided, but also your your vulnerability and talking a little bit about your story. Um, I, I I enjoyed listening to it, um, and and I'm sure other people listening to the podcast will will feel the same. So, um, thanks for for joining us today. My pleasure. Thanks for uh, having me on. Yeah. All right. Uh, well, stay tuned. Uh, we are going to actually have uh, Mr. Johnny Fernandez on for next the next episode uh, talking about substance use. The content in this program is not intended to be a substitute for professional counseling, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your mental health professional or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have. Never disregard professional advice or delay in seeking counseling because of something you have heard on this podcast. If you or someone you know is in need of counseling in the state of Arizona, feel free to call us at 602-488-6104. If you are in crisis or think you may have an emergency, call 911 immediately. If you are in Maricopa County, Arizona and are in a behavioral health crisis, you can call the crisis hotline at 1-800-631-1314. If you are outside of Maricopa County, please call your local crisis hotline or call 1-800-273-8255. If you're located outside the United States, call your local emergency line immediately.